Welcome to the Yes Collective podcast. The Yes Collective is an emotional health studio run by the best therapists and psychologists around. Our team focuses on cutting edge approaches like internal family systems, somatic therapies, authentic relating, and trauma-informed experiential group practices. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook to learn more. I'm Justin Wilford, PhD, Director of Content and co-founder of Yes Collective. And each week I join my host, Jenny Walters, licensed therapist and co-CEO of Yes Collective to bring you the most amazing cutting edge therapists, psychologists, coaches, and other leaders in emotional health. Thanks so much for joining us and be sure to subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts. Before we begin, I want to tell you about a brand new way to build connection, personal growth, and modern spirituality into your life. Starting in May, we're launching brand new four-week live online workshops called Studio Circles. Each circle focuses on cutting-edge transformational practices and ideas that help you connect to others more authentically, grow personally and professionally, and tap into profound moments of spirituality in your daily life. These four-week live workshops are led by the top psychologists, therapists, and coaches, some of whom you've heard on this podcast. To join, all you need to do is become a member of Yes Collective by going to home.yescollective.app. If you're already a member, then you can join the next Studio Circle right in the app, and we'll post a link in the show notes. Our first studio circle starting on May 8th is on learning the skills of authentic relating and circling to create deep, meaningful relationships. I'll be leading it with the help of licensed clinical psychologist Alicia Wooth. So please sign up today and join us in May. Okay, on to the podcast. So we've been wanting to have more conversation around modern spirituality. And last November, we spent the whole month talking about the power of spirituality, but we don't just want to relegate it to one month. So we reached out to licensed clinical psychologist Jordana Jacobs to talk about modern spirituality in a therapeutic context. Jordana currently practices in New York City and has years of experience treating patients there. She completed her pre-doctoral internship at Bellevue Hospital Center and postdoctoral fellowship at Columbia University. She also trained at various other major hospitals, including Memorial Sloan Kettering and Mount Sinai Beth Israel Medical Center, gaining experience working with a diverse range of patients, including people diagnosed with terminal illness, substance users, and emerging adults. So she has this amazing breadth of experience, and we were so excited to bring her on because she goes deep into these existential questions of love and death and this undertone of this deep but modern spirituality. This was a fantastic conversation. We talked about modern spirituality, how it differs from you know, an older type of religious spirituality, say, from past generations. We talked about how Jordana came to recognize spirituality in her own life, as well as her professional practice. We talked about how love and death are cornerstones of any spiritual practice. And we talked about how she helps her patients get closer to their own truth and their own spirituality. So without any further ado, I am thrilled to present the wise and wonderful Jordana Jacobs.
have been wanting to have more conversations around transcendence and modern spirituality. We're an emotional health platform. And so a lot of the stuff that we do is more focused on maybe slightly more conventional approach to uh, mental and emotional health. But we've been wanting to have these conversations more. So I was introduced to you through a mutual friend, Sophie Singer. And when I started to dive into your your work and your writings, uh, panels you've been on, your Instagram, I was like, oh my gosh, Jordana is going to be uh, yeah an awesome guest to help us dive more into this topic of transcendence and spirituality. So one of the big things that you talk about, or well, you talk about a few big things. So love and death is a major focus of your work. And so I'm curious, uh, just first about your origin story, how this came into your, your work, how this came into your life, how this came to be such a big focus for you. Well, first of all, again, thank you for having me, Justin. Thank you for looking into my work. It really, it really means a lot. So love and death. I mean, there are many ways I can answer how I arrived at love and death, but um, I do think it's important to note that I'm the descendant of Holocaust survivors on my mom's side. And I grew up hearing a lot about death growing up. And the resilience, the love, the meaning uh, that can sometimes come out of trauma and tragedy and make uh, suffering something that is useful to us, something that can create growth and connection. So I feel like that's sort of the the fertile ground uh, in which I was raised to talk about some of these existential issues. So it sounds like from a really young age, I just had a, an image of, you know, I don't know, 10 or 8, 12 years old. All the other kids are, you know, into, I don't know, whatever it is, like the latest songs or fashion. And you're like, hey, guys, let's talk about love and death. <laughs> well, I mean, it didn't I, I don't think I was really thinking about it that much when I was 10. I, I actually think I was probably just terrified um, hearing stories about my grandparents' families dying. Yeah. So what, what, was, what was that like as a child? And it was just terrifying. It was just a feeling of I think terror. terrifying and fascinating simultaneously. Like if you think about, you know, all fairy tales, there's death in almost every fairy tale. And I do think there's something to that in getting kids, um, you know, just acquainted with the idea of death, um, but in a way that's palatable. And kids are really drawn into that. Like there is a fascination. There is like, a, what is that? People can just go. And so my, the fairy tales I heard growing up were a little bit scarier or a lot scarier um, and, and real. And so I think I, you know, if I'm thinking about it now, I think I, I spent a lot of time trying to make sense of what happened to my grandparents in a way that my, my mom, who, you know, is the direct descendant, maybe couldn't in the same capacity that, um, she was so vicariously traumatized by their trauma. And I was one more step removed. And I think it made it safe enough for me to think about it. 
you know, but it, it was really, it was really there for me growing up. And then by the time I was in graduate school, both my parents are therapists. Um, so it's not why I became a therapist, but it, it <laughs> yeah. was in the genes. The family business. How did, that, yeah. how did that go? We can, we've heard both sides of having parents as therapists. How was it for you? Um, I know nothing else. <laughs> so I'm, I'm ultimately incredibly grateful to have both my parents be well-versed in emotions. And, you know, they did create a lot of space to share and think and feel, but neither of my parents are spiritual people. Um, I, I don't think either of them would really describe themselves as spiritual. So I do think that's where I went in a, a different direction. And, and my practice does have that thread of spirituality, my, my life practice and my, my therapeutic practice as well. You know, ultimately, just to sort of close it out, when I was writing my dissertation, I was thinking about what makes long-term relationships really last, what keeps fire and passion alive. And I'm a big fan of Esther Perel. And she says, fire needs air, uh, that you need to create space in order for passion to thrive. And I started to conceptualize what the ultimate space was. And I, I believe it's death you know, recognizing you could lose someone at any time. And so I did start to look quantitatively into that relationship, into the acknowledgement that you could lose somebody, that you will lose somebody, and how that affects uh, romantic love. I'm so curious about that in terms of coming into, from the terror of that into the acceptance of that. And, and how does that relate to passion? I'm thinking back when I first got married, I never before had had a terror of sudden loss, but here I was suddenly just absolutely terrified whenever my wife would go, she rode motorcycles. So, mm. you know, and I would notice I was in a real terror around it. And then I ultimately had to come to an acceptance that I may lose her someday so that I couldn't be, I couldn't sustain that state of terror. But I'm just curious if what, if you could speak to the relationship and the impact that that process maybe has on passion. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you made that switch actually. How did you do that? I think my practice has always been when I am in terror to turn toward it mm -hmm. and to try to make friends with it in some way and to try to understand it and come in. And I guess in a way I was doing internal family systems without knowing it, Justin, <laughs> you know, I was just sort of like, <laughs> there's a part of me that's terrified and um, it's not sustainable. So how do I, how do I get curious? And then kind of radical acceptance, just that exercise of, and then what happens? Okay, let's say she dies. And then what happens? And I ultimately got to the place of after, you know, shock and, and devastation and loss, I would ultimately, my life would go on. I would have a choice whether to live and continue living my life or not. And I believed that ultimately I would choose to continue to live my life. And so that practice of radical acceptance just unto myself kind of helped me calm down over time. Totally, totally. And I, I think a lot of people, just like you said, experience the terror, either consciously or unconsciously. You know, it's so terrifying. They don't even want to acknowledge the possibility and they turn away and then it gets scarier and scarier. Um, and we cope unconsciously in all these strange ways rather than saying, okay, this is a fact of life. This will happen. I will lose my partner. They will lose me. I have, I have a 
wonderful friend who just had a son and he said, I've never been more afraid of dying. I've never been more afraid of the idea of, of not being here, of missing out on time with, with my son or him not having a father. And I think the more intense the love, <laughs> um, the more the fear of loss. Yeah. And the more intense the grief. And so I was going to ask you about this. And so it sounds like your focus was on almost pre-grief. It's, it's like this, this pre-grief of what it would mean to lose this person that is here right now that I love, that's ostensibly healthy. And, um, and, and so I'm curious what your thoughts around grief and grief work are, because you seem to work in pre-grief as well. I do think my focus is actually more on that pre-grief um, concept. I, I've never really called it that, but I'm I'm particularly interested in how the acknowledgement of mortality um, and moving towards it, just as Jenny said, has the ability to enliven our relationships. That when we feel like our relationships are stagnant um, or static rather that they don't change um that you know we're going to be together forever quote unquote mm, mm, i think mm -hmm. it's a breeding ground for uh, boredom complacency emptiness um it's like i there's a zen parable about plastic flowers or real flowers you know if they look exactly the same you still want the real flowers you want the ones that you know are going to die. What an interesting thing, right? We 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 crave that um, that impermanence, actually, yeah. um, to yeah. really appreciate the beauty of a, of flowers. And the same thing goes, I think, for our romantic partnerships. But we're so terrified to think about that loss that then we repress that, and that does something to a relationship over time. We, if we think we have something forever, we don't appreciate it in the same way. And so my, my study actually showed that it didn't increase passion in relationships. I thought it would, but it did increase intimacy yeah, tremendously. Yeah, wow. And um, I think that's, you know, a, a very meaningful finding still. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the past, gosh, what has been about five or six years have gotten much more into grief work. Uh, my wife and I have a childhood cancer nonprofit. And so we've walked the journey with many, many parents now who've lost their kids. What I've learned around grief with this really just deep, inexpressibly painful loss of a child is that for those who do the work around this grief and really follow the grief as far and honestly and authentically as they can, that there is this opening into just this love and presence. And it's like, oh, this is, this is why life is so precious. Like, because it's not just that this person that I, that I love deeply, uh, is gone, but actually everyone I love deeply is going to go actually everything in this, in this life is going to go. And then it just brings us back to this moment. So I really appreciate this finding of intimacy because what I have recognized in, in this grief work and then coming back into this deep presence and, and love is that it's almost like a, a more it's a greater intimacy with, with life. Totally. 
Totally. A greater intimacy with the present moment, with this really being all we've got. Yeah. So Jordana, I, in diving into your work, I have noticed it's, it's like spirituality is just an undercurrent, but I haven't noticed the word spirituality in your work. I'm curious, how does this word land for you? Spirituality. It's so interesting that it's, it's not in my Instagram, that it's not um, in that many of much of my writing, like that actual word, because it, I feel like it's the, the water sort of all around me, maybe like a, like a goldfish in a fish tank. Like it's like there, you're surrounded by water. So it's hard to even point out. Uh, But I do feel it's this undercurrent pretty much with everything I do. And when it's not, I'm in real trouble. Actually, when I lose the tether to my spirituality, um, that's when problems arise. I'm curious what your pathway into spirituality has been, given that neither of your parents uh, were spiritual. Mm -hmm. I think it was maybe part of my rebellion, actually, from them to believe in something, to really believe in something, to believe in something larger than myself. Um, I started meditating in high school. Um, I studied abroad in Northern India and Bhutan to learn more about Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I've done a few 10 days silent meditation retreats, Vipassana, which have really shifted my perspective and relationship to spirituality um, and relationship to mortality. Um, And I've done some psychedelic work that has been incredibly helpful to me in that area as well. But it was sort of like, if I'm going to be a therapist, I got to be a therapist in my own way. I love the idea, though, that because neither of your parents were spiritual, that it was, yeah, this this form of rebellion. And it's really interesting. Both Jenny and I grew up in conventional religious settings. My dad was a Baptist pastor. Jenny, did, did you go to Catholic school? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So it was all, it was a whole different uh, way into spirituality for us both. Jenny, what was your, I, I think I recall you saying that you've all, always sensed uh, spirituality, that it wasn't something foreign to you in your childhood. Yeah, it wasn't foreign, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I felt a great freedom in fourth grade. I sent a petition around my Catholic school to see if girls could be altar boys. And I got a ton of signatures and then I handed it to the the priest, Monsignor Bauer, and he laughed at me. And that was the day I left the Catholic Church in my heart. And from that point forward, it was a real searching for something, something, you know, something sacred, something, um, some kind of sacred space, some kind of relationship with God or, you know, source or whatever you want to call it. But what I'm so and as you know, Justin, you know, I've, t- I've been coming out of the closet around my spirituality as a therapist because, you know, there's so much, you know, I was trained in sort of psychoanalytic therapy and psychodynamic therapy. And so not a lot of self-disclosure, obviously, but also just something about spirituality felt like verboten. Like we just can't we can't go there. We can't know about that. And yet I could feel in clients, my clients who did have a, a spiritual practice or or relationship 
or, or in connection with div- the divine or the divinity within in some way, their healing was moving faster. It was more, it was deeper. It was just, they were feeling more health. And so I've just, that's just an anecdotal observation I've had. I'm just curious if you could talk to us at all, some about how it shows up in your practice. You're saying that's the thread, that's the through line. How do you talk about it with clients? How are they talking about it? How is it showing up in your work? It's it's a great question and a great point that you make about, you know, I, I was trained psychodynamically. We're not really taught to to discuss spirituality, and yet it's such a healing factor, mm-hmm. at least for me. So I, I need to be tapped into my spirituality um, and my connection to the divine in order to be the best therapist, the best tool for healing that I feel I can be. And when I am not, and I feel disconnected and I feel sort of on my own, um, I, I can sense that the the therapeutic relationship is, is really not as strong. I'm not able to create as much of a holding environment. I can't, I can't um, create as much space for my patient. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't create that kind of loving awareness um, for them that I um, am, you know, always hoping to cultivate. So do I use the word spirituality with my patients? Sometimes, definitely not all the time, because um, it it can really turn people off and be alienating. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's sort of always there with me as I practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And it does seem like there's almost like a coming out of the closet process like you said, of either myself or a, or a patient sort of saying like, you know, I believe in a higher power or um, this is the way I, I think about God. Um, and then those conversations are always incredibly fruitful. What I do talk about more openly is impermanence and death and love and isolation and sort of existential themes that have a lot of overlap with spirituality. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, do you find clients, do they bring their own spiritual practices into therapy? And if so, do you see a commonality? Like there, there are some popular spiritual practices that have been helpful, useful. You know, meditation is always sort of the, the go-to. I think that's what most people bring in or what I will suggest or reading, honestly, about meditation or reading something that has a spiritual bent um, as like almost like a gateway <laughs> to spirituality. You know, I just suggested The Power of Now to a patient or uh, Waking Up by Sam Harris, something that is really accessible um, and easy to read, but lays the sort of intellectual foundation for some of the more experiential spiritual practices. But I I also think of therapy as an inherently spiritual practice Mm -hmm. in and of itself, that kind of connection, um, that kind of love between a patient and a therapist, you know, that's another, we don't talk about spirituality in therapy, in therapy, but we also often don't talk about love in the therapeutic relationship. Um, And I think that's also really important to talk about. And I do think that makes therapy inherently spiritual. Jenny, I'm curious what you think about this idea of therapy being inherently spiritual. 
I could not agree more. It's so nice to hear someone just say it too, you know? If we were to put this in like IFS language, it's about returning to self, essential self. And to me, when I think of that in relationship to spirituality, to me, that is, you know, wise, wise self, my higher self, the part of me that is most connected to love and is connected to humanity and to others and to an idea of you know, oneness and the collective and, and that kind of thing. So to me, therapy is about walking alongside someone and, and at times guiding them on the journey back home to self, to essential self and to the divine within them, which I think is what connects us to divinity at large. So I couldn't agree more is my short answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did a training with Dick Schwartz uh, and Phil Wolfson and IFS ketamine training. And um, yeah, one of the things we talked about was sort of the self as the Atman and, you know, the greater God, divine, whatever words you want to use as the Brahma. And if you can go deep enough into the Atman, then you be, there is a non-dual where there's that connection to the Brahman too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I love that you mentioned that because internal family systems has been my way into spirituality because I grew up, my dad was a Baptist pastor stopped going to church when I was about 15 or 16 and then never looked back. Uh, I spent decades in academia, just secular, you know, regular old academic. Now I'm an, one of the things I do is I'm an IFS practitioner and it has been the way back in just this idea of capital S self. And then it's only been in the last year that I have learned, Oh wait, there's, I I don't know. It's like not until level three training that they talk about capital S, capital E, capital L, capital F self. And that's that, you know, big universal oneness. And, and uh, uh, it has been really transformative for, for my own spirituality. One, one other thing that you mentioned, and I don't really, I'll, I'll just reveal, uh, Honestly, I don't know the way in. I don't have a specific question about it, but I guess I'll just throw it out for you to say more about psychedelics and how this has been a part of your own personal journey and perhaps professional as, as well. <laughs> it's it's shaped me tremendously. Um, I guess another rebellion from my parents. They're definitely not into this sort of thing. But I, I've had experiences with plant medicine that have helped me come into contact with like ego dissolution and also with ketamine too on that retreat, the IFS retreat of there being sort of no self. I mean, dare I say like pure consciousness feels yeah. like experientially um, as a way for me to get more comfortable with the idea of my own mortality and impermanence mm. to really feel like there is something that exists uh, beyond the body and this life. And I, I still, I have no claims as to really like what that is or whether or not I really believe in reincarnation. And um, I, I don't know, but just feeling like there's a, there's something that exists beyond a me. Um, and I, I felt that most profoundly through psychedelics uh, and 10 day silent meditation retreats. They, you know, I, they've had to be pretty extreme experiences. Um, yeah. 
But a little bit like, I don't know if you've read How to Change Your Mind, um, but Mm -hmm. I I think most people in the field have at this point, but just being able to come into contact with those experiences, even if I don't have them uh, every day, but just to know that I've, I've been able to touch that space really has changed, I don't know, everything for me. I have a deep curiosity about this. I said I was a typical, you know, secular academic, but there was this undercurrent of spirituality for me because in my late teens, I, I loved going to raves and I loved consuming um, psychedelics when I when I when I did, and I had a few experiences. Now, at a rave, there's you know with the psychedelics and the music and the dancing, you know, there's not a lot of introspection or, but, but there were a few times when the rave would be like police where we, we, we would have to leave. And for whatever reason would just be on a couch. And those moments were really profound in the way that you just described this kind of ego dissolution or the sense of just something much bigger. And even though there, you know, decades in the past, there they they were really profound and influential for me. Yeah, and now I forgot exactly where I was going with that, but I had that resonance with with that sense that 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 there is is this this deep and uh, profound sense that one gets from these. So I'm curious, do you see this eventually being a part of your professional work? I'm not sure. I, I haven't figured it out yet. I thought I was going to start doing ketamine treatment uh, with patients because now I'm technically trained, but I, I haven't figured out if that's really what I'm being called towards yet. I, I Mm. deeply enjoy integration work. I have many patients that know this is an interest of mine and they go out and they, um, they have experiences and they come back and we, we work on them for, you know, months, sometimes years integrating what they experienced. That I know I love. And I'm not sure I'm so drawn to ketamine. If and when psilocybin becomes legal in New York to use for therapeutic purposes, then I might make a real shift in in my practice. Yeah. And have you done holotropic breath work? Are you you're familiar. <laughs> it's like I've all the different vehicles, you know, to get to that sort of mystical place. I, I've definitely tried a lot of them and breath work I struggle with the most. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. I can't do it, can't get into it. I, I feel incredibly uncomfortable. Um, yeah. you know, I'd rather meditate for 10 days than do like, <laughs> yeah. so for me, like if I can get past the first 10 minutes, cause the first 10 minutes are the worst, then mm-hmm. the rest is just, you know, smooth sailing. But I also get the sense that it's a fantastic first step for those interested in psychedelics, because you'll get a sense of, of some of those non-ordinary states of consciousness. But if it gets too much or it's uncomfortable, you just stop hyperventilating. <laughs> you know? There's an off ramp. Breathe normally. <laughs> There's an easy off ramp. It's not like, oh, I've got six more hours of this, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I definitely recommend it um, for people to try. Um, but it is really interesting. There are all these different vehicles to the the mystical. And I I, I almost think we naturally gravitate towards some rather rather than others or those non-ordinary consciousness yeah i know in in the therapeutic world there are some there's some frustration that 
that work with psychedelics therapeutically is being sort of marketed as a silver bullet, as sort of like a quick, the quickest, fastest way and and some frustration with that. And it makes me kind of wonder about your thoughts on spiritual bypassing um, as a way and, you know, is something that sometimes spirituality gets misused or confused, maybe is a better word. Totally. When I think about spiritual bypassing, I think about this Anais Nin quote. Um, I, I, I'll try not to butcher it, but it's something like, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Do you know that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I do think that when we go straight into psychedelic work or we do it um, without a real understanding of the lens through which we view the world, um, it's it's incredibly problematic. <laughs> um, and and it would be my suggestion to sort of work on that lens and try to uh, understand it, to clean it as much as possible so that when we do experience um, the mystical or spiritual or non-ordinary states of consciousness, we understand uh, the lens through which we're, we're viewing that, that truth. And when we don't do that, um, yeah, it's problematic. And a lot of, a lot of ego uh, can get wrapped up in the experience without understanding your ego. What I've seen um, is the, yeah, that, that kind of, chasing after the experience and not really integrating it and so this mm-hmm. this idea that you you spend not not just weeks or months but perhaps even years in integration makes total sense and that's the that's the opposite of spiritual bypassing for me right yeah i just went on a sort of retreat and one of the one of the teachers was talking about you know creating a spiritual practice and he was saying how we all want to rush to the spiritual experience. You know, we all want to to rush to the moment where uh, of transcendence or of some of, of of a message or of a knowing or of a deep um, whatever we fantasize that that experience is, but that that's you know that's not how it works, and that we have to spend that time in that meditate in that in that stillness practice, which is the most uncomfortable for most of us, right? If that just not having an experience and just having to be aware of the fact that I am longing for an experience and it may or may not, uh, it may or may not occur growing some patience around that or growing some acceptance or mindfulness or what, what, what have you. And it also kind of, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, um, I had a conversation with my niece this weekend and I've been trying to encourage her to start a meditation practice as a way to get some relief around big feelings and, and you know, she was like, I just need to know the why. I just need to know why this is important. Why? I don't understand. I mean, everyone says it's great, but no one's really explained why. And I just wonder if you could, if you were speaking to just sort of the everyday person where this is sort of like, what are they talking about, you know, in terms of meditation and spirituality as a part of, you know, being therapeutic, what would you, what would you say to them? Well, this is often why I'll recommend books to patients before telling them to sit and use headspace or or start practicing. I, I really think understanding the why is fundamental because it, it, it's it's annoying and frustrating to practice something when you don't know why you're you're putting in that time and effort. Mm-hmm. I think there's so many ways to answer that. 
the first thing that comes to mind is that I, I think the practice of meditation helps you accept reality as it is and not be in a state of resistance. Um, and that state of resistance, whatever it looks like, you know, for each individual person is, is often what makes living so uncomfortable. <laughs> um, yeah. And so practicing yeah. just getting comfortable with what is and sitting with it, making room for it. I mean, I think that's in part how you get to that, you know, uh, big self energy. Yeah. 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 yeah that radical acceptance, which I went through mindfulness based stress reduction training about five or six years ago. And we had a whole section on radical acceptance and, um, it, it didn't make sense until we got to a quote where it was about radical acceptance is like, it's not agreeing with or condoning or being happy about, or any of these other things. It's about this radical willingness to engage with what is mm. like, Oh yeah, that's, I want some of that stuff. <laughs> willingness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's, just just it's to engage little... with what is here right now. Yeah. Yes. And it, you know, it reminds me, Jenny, of what you were saying, just about the acceptance of impermanence. It's like that mm -hmm. is here, you know, everyone is going to die. Can we work to accept that reality as it is? Because if we don't, we spend so much energy um, defending against that truth. I'm curious in the process of, of working with people around that kind of acceptance of impermanence. Can you speak to, is there a process? I'm curious about folks who go to that existential depression, to that place of, well, then what's the point? Yeah. Which to me can often be on the way to that peace that you can feel and being in the present moment. Like, well, if, the, if this is what I have, then let me be here and let me, let me be present to it. But can you speak to the, to the, to that process or the grieving that might come with accepting impermanence? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, two sides of the same coin, that nihilism um, almost. And then that sort of like life is full of meaning and it's, you know, how do you flip almost to that, to that other side? It makes me think about Viktor Frankl um, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning and really, you know, saying it's like it, meaning is a choice, sort of a choice we make. It's like we mm. can look at it as meaningless or we can look at it all as incredibly meaningful. And what, mm -hmm. what choice would you rather make? Um, and, and then I also think about um, spirituality as playing a very big role in that a belief in a higher power a belief in the divine i think does give existence inherent meaning mm -hmm. it is a purpose a divine order to what's yeah. happening here right so it takes it out of kind of nihilistic chaos chaos and mm -hmm. and i love this what you said about there's a choice we don't have a choice around death right i mean that is that is going to happen. We, we have no choice, but there is a choice in how we are in relationship to that, to that fact, to that impermanence. Exactly. Yeah. And we were in resistance um, to it. We have an adversarial 
relationship with it. If we're in mm-hmm. acceptance, um, then we can, you know, potentially have a beautiful, loving relationship. Right. There's more choices. In the adversarial place, you're in a war with something that you will never, you'll win. never win. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, futile. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that I noticed is w- once I had a child, so I have two, two kids now, 16 and 13. When my, after our first was born, I remember realizing like pretty quickly, like, oh, any sort of nihilism, any sort of just meaninglessness that was that, that I was combating, that I was dealing with, it's gone, like, like 0.000% gone, because now I have this, this amazing being in my life that I, I care about more than anything else. And reflecting on that, I was like, Oh, wow, like, I mean, how much of nihilism and meaninglessness is about just a lack of connection, a lack of deep, intimate connection. Because once oh. we make that connection, <laughs> I mean, once, yeah, like, it's, I mean, it's, it's like, oh, yeah. meaning like flows seamlessly from connection because like once we're in connection, it's like, oh, fuck, I care now. Like, I don't need anything else. Like I, I, I now care. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it reminds me of another sort of Esther Perelism just like the quality of your life is the quality of your relationships. Um, And another way to say that is like, it's really, it is about love, right? Um, Yes. How much love and connection do we feel on, on a daily basis? Um, And can we also have that love and connection with ourselves, even if it's not interpersonal? Um, I, I do think that's sort of the web that creates meaning in life. And it also makes death really scary and terrifying. So it's, well, it's like, right. we can have oh, those it's love and, and death, love and death. Yeah. <laughs> love and connections, yeah. Enriching love, uh, that enriching love and connection, um, and also not be so terrified of the impermanence, but really have a loving relationship with that as well. I think that's the foundation for, um, a, a spiritually content life. Mm. Yeah. You know, the thing that scares me the most about getting older is the lack of connection around spirituality because I don't have a religion and I don't have a church. So when my father died, the church showed up. I mean, it was, we had, you know, 13 bunt cakes and 14 casseroles. And I mean, it was just descended upon our home. And as I watch my mother age, Uh, You know, she just celebrated her, she's celebrating her 94th birthday. And we threw a little party when I was back in Kansas City and her church friends, you know, who are younger than her came and celebrated her. And these are women that have been in her life for decades through the church. And so as you speak of this, I'm thinking about your your essays that you've been writing, Justin, around, you know, we need a post-church church and around, you know, how do we, what, what part of spirituality is community and connection? Cause so often these practices, meditation, it's, it's, a, it's solitary, you know, in front of my altar, you know, I mean, that's solitary. Um, and I don't care to just necessarily worship something, you know, like you would in a church or have some kind of, you know, ritual ceremony, but yet I really crave 
connection with other, you know, spiritual friendship, I think is the word like Tara Brock's using right now and Jack Cornfield. I'm noticing they're doing some seminars around this concept of spiritual friendship. So I'm just wondering if you can speak to that, um, your thoughts on that. I think it's, it's huge. Um, I think finding spiritual community is incredibly important, particularly as we age. I, my boyfriend, um, is in a men's group and, um, sometimes he'll call it, you know, like he'll call it like a connection to a higher power to a certain degree because, uh, G O D can also stand for group of dudes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the idea being like anything larger than yourself, tapping into anything larger than yourself, um, yeah, whether yeah. it's religious, spiritual, or community based, just a group of people that you feel uh, deeply connected to. It, yeah. You know, the idea of aging and aging alone, I think, is incredibly scary. Mm. Jordana, I'm going to send you my stuff on the, on the idea of a post-church church, because this is, it's exactly this. And if, you know, from an anthropological lens, which is part of my academic background, community and transcendence have been tied together in human religion for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, as, as far back as we can possibly find in any of the evidence, this uh, deep community and then these practices of transcendence, whether it's dancing or chanting or whatever the case is, and they go together and they're, 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 they're deeply woven into our DNA. And the fact that we don't have easy access to them in our current social arrangement, I think is a major source of malaise, shall we say. We're trying to do this with Yes Collective. And I want to get t-shirts made that say all of the connection, none of the cult, you know, like (laughs) we're trying to create. (laughs) Totally. That's that's why cults are so seductive in this day and age. Right. Um, People are, are really searching for that kind of um, connection, community, sense of home, feeling less alone in the world. Yeah. And so the question is, can we do this work in a transparent, flexible, uh, intellectually honest way? Like, can can we have practices of community and transcendence that eschew all of the, the other cultish s- stuff? And that's that's what we're. Well, and can we do it without a narcissistic on. leader? Which I think we can. You know? <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I was how to say the same thing that like. I sure hope so, but the the primary thing I think is is actually like not having a leader at yes. all. I've been thinking about this with this post church church idea. So like, who would lead a post church church? It wouldn't be a pastor. It wouldn't be a reverend. I really like the word facilitator. Like we would have facilitators, like you know, people and to facilitate to make the process easier. One final question, and then we'll go into our our three rapid questions that we ask everybody. But Jordan, I'm curious, and you've already might have touched on uh, a few of these. But are there any uh, is there anything new and challenging that you are entering into in your life? Any any new practices, ideas, things that are really pushing you at your edge? Pickleball, you know. 
(laughs) (laughs) A new weightlifting (laughs) regimen, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm about to move. I'm not moving very far from my current apartment. I'm just, you know, seven blocks away, but moving always brings up a lot for me, you know, like finding an apartment, packing everything up, like decorating new place. I can get kind of obsessive and, and really lose touch with my spiritual practice and, and being in flow. And um, Jordana, have you seen that moving is one of the, like the top stressors that people have, experience? Which is very yeah. validating. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I I like, I lose it a little bit. Um, I lose, I lose the thread and I, I'm listening to Pema Chodron's um, book, How We Live is How We Die. Um, I don't know if either of you have read it, but it's it's really beautiful. I can't believe I hadn't read it until now, but it, it came out in 2022. So it's it's relatively new. But she she talks about coping with the transitions in our lives are, you know, <laughs> when we're living Um very consciously and gracefully and using each transition as a practice for death. So I, I am really trying and, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing it for myself and also to not torture my boyfriend who I'm moving in with to really try to do it differently this time and to be very conscious of, of my fear and anxiety around this transition, which is a pretty simple one in comparison to, to mortality, um, and really try to stay um, very present through it. Mm. Well, that feels big. It's not just a move, but it's it's like a new transition That's in practice. your relationship as well. Yes, it's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> it's an identity shift too. Yeah. 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 I was just going to say sharing space with another human is is no joke. That is a big, <laughs> it's a big adjustment energetically, emotionally. Yeah. And it's no joke. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't just have, uh, my life partner, but I have two kids and two dogs. So yeah, it's, it's sharing, sharing space is it's, uh, you know what sharing space is its own spiritual practice. I, I... Totally. Totally. And accepting the reality as it is when things are not sort of just the way I like them. Can I really oh make room for um, another person? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like, what what new capacities do I need to grow in order to make this, this thing work? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we have three last questions that we ask everyone. So the first one is, if you could put a big post-it note on everyone's refrigerator tomorrow morning, they wake up and they see the post-it note from Jordana, what would that note say? I think it would say, it's actually the name of the love and death talk that I used to give, um, but tomorrow is promised to no one. I you know, mm-hmm. I just think daily reminders of life being short, um, really snap us into present awareness and into a place of um, really loving connection, uh, the preciousness of loving connection. Yeah, that could be dangerous on my refrigerator. That would lead me straight for ice cream for breakfast, like tomorrow's (laughs) promise to no one. Yeah, (laughs) 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 (laughs)
Okay, so the last quote that changed the way you think or feel. Um, I just posted something on my Instagram from that Pema Chodron book. It's actually a Teet Not Han quote. Um, he says, it's not impermanence that makes us suffer. What makes us suffer is wanting things to be permanent when they're not. Mm. Yeah. Which I think sums mm. up a lot of what we talked That's about. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah. at the heart of these practices. What is one thing, this is the third final question, what is one thing giving you hope right now? I'd have to say my, my private practice and my, my work with my patients and just watching people grow and change um, gives me a lot of hope. I really, I, I love my job. I love being able to create that space for people to psycho spiritually evolve and to, to really like have a front row seat to watch. I see 22 people a week, but to watch 22 people do that, go back week after week to face some of the things that are scariest and hardest for them and to watch that change. Ugh, it really I feel incredibly honored and it gives me a lot of hope. Mm, beautiful. Jordana, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait. I hope we can have you back on. This has been such a nourishing conversation. For me thank too. You. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Hey, if you like what we're doing here at Yes Collective Podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player, share it with other parents in your life, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes Collective is a mental health movement for all parents, so let's spread the love.